0: Well, over the past few months, on and off, maybe more than that, we've been, I've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that's a long section, chapters 5 to 7 in Matthew. Um, and the first sermon I did was a very high-speed pass. Uh, I could see there was a bit of a prepositional whiplash in the church. There was just too much there and so much to cover. So I would come back time to time to just pick up on some of those Key points that I think um, deserve more unpacking. One could say it all does, but there are some pivotal verses and commandments in that in that section. So, yeah, the main point of that sermon, if you hadn't gotten it, is Christ is contrasting the righteousness of man or the world. One could say, and he specifically here is preaching to an audience which would have Pharisees and scribes in it. So he knew his audience, and what they uh, had to see here is is their uh, self-righteousness, and then he's contrasting that with the righteousness and the high standard, the perfect standard of God's righteousness, and in turn His righteousness. And that in fact God demands perfect righteousness. So he's highlighting here, if you want to turn there, uh, you can turn to... uh, Chapter 5 for now, although I'll be preaching from 7, but 5 gives us a bit of review. You look at the Beatitudes and then some of the uh, expectation of Christ's um, standard for man, in terms of lust and murdering your brother in your heart and so on, hating your brother. So here he's highlighting the best of man's righteousness by pointing out the scribes, uh, with all of their outward goodness, with all of their devotion that they could muster, all of the duty and the traditions and observations, their memorization of Scripture and even their own extra-biblical laws, their fasting, their praying, their giving, their giving even their public suffering and, and uh, praying, that's all of man's effort, and yet, with all of that, they're left wanting. Now, this is a bit of a spoiler alert if you guys haven't read this section or were here during that sermon, um, Man's religious works are meaningless. That's the bad news. Our righteousness is not enough. The good news, though, is that Christ's righteousness is perfect, which means it is more than enough. The Sermon on the Mount removes all of that pretense that Christ is addressing here, that you are able somehow to meet God's perfect standard of holiness in any measure. Every verse in this sermon either convicts you of that, that we do not measure up, or condemns us because we fall short. Now conviction is different than condemnation, because conviction can lead to what? Repentance and, and turning to God in, in in your need for Him. But it condemns you if you reject it. So let's just review a few of those points in the Beatitudes to just kind of review as it builds up to where we find ourselves this morning in chapter 7. I want to set the standard here that Christ does set for us uh, in these Beatitudes and in those uh, laying out the high standard of God. Um, Yeah, he sets out these blessings. But without Christ, without His indwelling Spirit, and the renewed heart that we we will receive at salvation, these blessings that he points at, that he describes, they are unattainable. Let's look at the poor in spirit. We've looked a bit this morning about self-righteousness in our Bible hour. Similar here. Are you really without pride? The self-righteous Pharisees wanted to be blessed by their outward works. They wanted to be blessed. They wanted the praise and the glory because of their outward righteousness. But here Christ is saying that you're blessed by putting off your self-righteousness and your works in order to what? What's the corollary there? To inherit the kingdom. This turned the Pharisees' idolatry of good works completely on its head and erased any hope of being blessed by their status, by their effort, their works, their rules, all those external things that they were known for. They certainly certainly weren't known for being loving, kind, compassionate people. They were high, holy, in lowercase h, religious elites of their day. What about hungering for righteousness? Do we really hunger for the righteousness of Christ in the way that we should What about living as an example that would draw people to Him and make His saving faith known? Who can claim to really be salt and light at all times? And when we read further along the sermon and we look at the conditions of the heart, who can say that we've never struggled with anger? We just looked at this morning. Or lust or deception. And most difficult of all, loving your enemy. Loving your enemy is so countercultural and completely impossible for man to do on his own effort for any length of time because it's only possible by God's renewing spirit in our lives. To love your enemy means not only to employ the golden rule, which is what? To do unto others as you would have them do to you, but to love those who hate you. That's a very high and perfect standard that only God can do through you. So loving your enemy is really a sermon unto itself, and maybe I'll get there someday. It's a, it's, just, it's a spiritual grace that truly shows the genuineness and the depth of love that can only come from a new heart from Christ. But moving through the list a little more, who, who of us can say this? Do we give generously with pure motives? Maybe you do give generously. Maybe you do help others. But is it with the right motive? Because otherwise, what is it? It is a filthy mm-hmm. rag. What about always praying for the right things and the right motives? And how about our love for those who are perishing? Those who do not know the Lord. Who can say that they put the salvation of others as a first priority to make the gospel known even as it costs you? And have I fully crucified myself to the world? Do I cling to the things of the world? Can I really say I don't worry about the things of this world? I can't. Not fully that I don't worry about my finances or the politics of the day, the spirit of the age, that I put my, uh, sorry, (laughs) Freudian slip there, that I put others first at the expense of my own comfort. And what about self-righteousness? It's an overarching problem. Do I notice my own sin before I point out the sin of others? Do I take the log out of my own eye before noticing and removing the speck in others? Can I honestly look at any of these Beatitudes and say, yeah, you know what? I measure up pretty good. Christ would be pleased with me. He's talking about me inheriting the kingdom through these passages. I don't think we can. What about Matthew 21, 5.21, anger? Can I say that I never commit murder in my heart by getting angry at my brother? Now, I did point this out last time as well, that we are actually surreal. Serial killers, because we are always killing our brother in our hearts, particularly if we looked at this morning, but not desiring to be reconciled. We harbor that anger, and here he's equating it with murder. So you are a bunch of serial killers in your heart, and we need to address that. And the more we study the Sermon on the Mount, we realize this sermon has no good news for a person who is hoping to be justified by themselves who is self-righteous. We will be very disappointed. We will be broken even. And that is the purpose of this Sermon on the Mount, to break your self-righteousness, to remove all hope of being right with God by your good works. So this morning I'm going to probably conclude our time in the Sermon on the Mount, although I do have more to go through, I I think I can summarize what I wanted to go through this morning. Uh, And this is where Christ utters... The most terrifying words in all the Bible, there are a lot of terrifying words, lots of words of condemnation to those who are not counted righteous in Christ, lots of warning of uh, the depravity of the world and the sinful heart of man, but let this one in particular cuts to our times and to maybe the condition of many in this church did I say many? Some. Many in the, the church in general, let's say. Let me read the warning from Matthew 7, verse 21, if you want to turn there. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of all of us. Let's, let's pray. Father God, as we just go through this particular section of the Gospel of Matthew, we thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word, first of all, the, the depth and the treasure that it is, the living word that works in our hearts and our minds and helps us to know you, Lord, that draws us nearer to you and helps us to live more as your son, And Lord, as we come to your word, we realize how insignificant we are. We are but uh, dust. Lord, we realize our condition is absolutely hopeless without the gospel of your Son, the uh, salvific work on the cross and the blood that was shed for us. And we give you praise for that this morning. May we be even more convicted of our hopelessness without you and our dependency on you and that we would draw even closer and that we would lean on you and not in our own understanding. Lord, help us to uh, grow in our love for one another and for you. Pray this in your Son's name. Amen. So there are lots of warnings and there's lots of condemnation in Scripture. There's judgment of the unrighteous deeds, and that even starts in Genesis 3. When you look at the, uh, the fall of man through Adam and Eve, as they're cast out of the garden because of their sin against God's very clear command. And then you see several uh, warnings throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And I'm I'm not here to expound all of those, but just you can think of many as you as you uh, think of uh, the warning of those who are living in sin. And in this passage in Matthew you can read the shock and the horror in the professing believers' response to Christ and in the desperate pleading before Him. It's important to note that these aren't strangers to the Gospel. These are professing believers. And I say professing. And I'll use that term often. They're professing believers that live with the full expectation of reward from Christ. And here they find themselves instead standing before His judgment seat. This is a warning that there are very sincere, very moral very hard-working and devoted people that will find themselves in hell. These are professing believers that will find themselves in hell. These aren't just part-time Sunday Christians who profess with their lips but reject Him with their lives. These are believers, by this account, who are zealous for Him, at least outwardly. They not only profess Christ... Sorry, there's not a lot of feedback. I don't know if you're... okay. They not only professed him, they were extremely religious in their works. And it lists some of their works there. Not in their entirety, but here's their claim. They cast out demons, they prophesied, and they did mighty works. That means extraordinary. So they aren't Sunday Christians. They, where they would come reluctantly to church, maybe once a month, or dragged there every Sunday by their spouse, sing a few songs sit through some of the teachings uh, and then sit through a sermon and then feel good about themselves that they've done their duty for God that week. Now, these were adherents that were busy Monday to Sunday doing mighty things in the name of Christ and now find themselves cast out by the one that they claim. This means that The road is much narrower than most people understand. Let's look at where Christ first warns about that narrow road that's related to this very warning in verse 21. So let's go back up just a few verses to verse 13, same chapter. Chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So this is related to the warning we find here in verse 21. That most, not some, most or many people who believe they are going to heaven are not. Many, Christ says that many will enter through the wide gate of destruction. And many will stand, Christ, surprised that they are on the wide road. So most people will deceive themselves, believing that they are justified and that they're accounted righteous because of even their meager works. They can't compare to these Pharisees and these scribes. Even today, the meager works of attending church is something that you might argue in your defense at your trial before Christ. What are, what are those meager works? Maybe you pray the sinner's prayer, or maybe you'll argue your generosity. Or moral works, or your help for de- helpful deeds, but in the end, you'll be trusting in your own righteousness and living for yourself. So the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has already given us this picture of a perfect righteousness and the impossibility to live up to that standard with your own effort. I hope that's clear, because that was what I preached before, and here now, you're seeing the results of that. And so Christ says that we are to be even more righteous than the Pharisees and scribes, which again in those days were the most devoted and most religious, the most zealot of their time. Verse 20, chapter 5, he says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. After this warning, Christ then explains that after your righteousness exceeds all, through all of that effort, all of that righteousness that they could see of the Pharisees, externally, he then shifts to the internal. He says, even that isn't enough. And then shows us our hearts. The internal righteousness that is the, the, uh, the more important. External works don't, don't say, but how do we have righteousness Genuine, internal. He takes us, I suppose one could say, to our respectable sins that we've been looking at, or let's call it private sins, the internal. Let's look at the standard he sets up in chapter 5, from verses 21 to 48. If you are to be righteous, here are some of the things. I'm not, not going to go through all of them, but this is a recap, and this will bring to mind where we're going. You're to do this. You're to live without anger in your heart. You're to live without lust in your heart. You're to live a life without deceit in your heart. To live without unfaithfulness. And to live without revenge or anger in your heart. So next Christ says this. To do all of this, this picture of perfection and the way you are to live. He says also to do all of that for His glory. So you don't even get credit for it. I've lived to live perfect, and now I I don't get any credit. I needed to do it for God's glory. So unlike the Pharisees who practiced all manner of external man-pleasing works and duties, they did it even in the public square to be seen of man, praying and fasting. They did that, why? To receive glory, to be recognized, to be seen as righteous. Now Christ is saying the opposite do it without the desire for personal glory. Christ expects us to seek His favor more than the things of the world. Again, cutting to the motivation of the Pharisees. We are to have a humble view of ourselves and view others as more important as ourselves. This is Christ's divine standard. And when we look at this standard, we can see it's impossible for us to achieve this. The hearers of this sermon would have, hearing it for the first time, would have been flabbergasted. Impossible. But this standard sets the scene for this narrow road that we'll referring to later. And when the masses come to Christ, when they die, they will find that they fall short because they leaned on their own righteousness and not on Christ's. The many that Christ speaks of here live a life that is full of self-deception. And we're going to look more closely at what that deception entails. One of those exceptions would be, well, at least I'm better than the other guy. It's a relative measure, isn't it? At least I'm not that bad. And they live a life of religious satisfaction. Because there is temporary, temporary um, waning satisfaction in religious activity. You're part of something. You're, you're on the right team. And you, you feel good about yourself when you can pick and choose the things that you maybe you've done last week. I didn't murder my brother, really, but I did hate him. But at least I didn't really murder him. There are ways we can justify ourselves. Maybe it's because you attend the the ceremony of coming to church or Bible study or fellowship. But in their hearts, these duties are done only to feel better about yourselves. It's not an act of worship. It's a form of works. And that is a kind of idolatry that Christ is getting to here. And as they worship their, in this passage, as they worship their own works of righteousness, they further deceive themselves that they're saved. Right with God, and that they're on the narrow road. Because they never examine their works. They don't see that they are actually part of the many. And the many around them are living the same way they are. And they don't look to the few who are living quite differently. And why? I suppose there's comfort in numbers. It's easier You get, it's satisfying, and that is what leads to further deception. They live in the ignorance of their own spiritual state because they always find new ways to deceive themselves continually. Look at the warning Christ gives in the context of the many who will not enter the kingdom. Firstly, he says in verse 15, they're deceived by false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Verse 16 says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. But the first point here is that they're there. And they don't look like wolves. The deception here is particularly pointed because these aren't wolves dressed as wolves, which would be easy to detect. The the, the villain in the movie is easy to spot because he's dressed up like a villain. He's intended to be that character, and this villain would only appeal to an unusually depraved, hard-hearted sliver of society. I mean, if, if you're deceived by a wolf dressed in wolves' clothing, then maybe you wanted that, <laughs> you were particularly depraved, I suppose. But these wolves are dressed up as sheep, meaning they look the part of the prophet, of the teacher. They are the pastors in the pulpits. They are the authors with big smiles and uh, promising even bigger things. These are the comforting, fluffy sheep that offer an easy message of comfort or safety or a wide, comfortable road to salvation because they promise salvation. They declare that there is a way to enter the kingdom of God without denying yourself, without holiness, without sacrifice, without righteousness even. And they preach a false assurance. And it's a wide gate. Some have convinced themselves that the wide road in this passage is actually not Christians. You've heard that before, I'm sure. I've talked to you, a couple of people say, I, I went to church last year and I'm, they, they speak of Christ, they speak of their salvation, and they are convincing themselves that the wide road in this context is actually unbelievers in other religions like that, uh, that Christ is saying those false faiths of Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons because they all have a, a form of Christ that they preach as well, right? And that's the wide road of ecumenism. And I'm not part of that. No, that's... And because of this view, many professing believers believe they are safe because they're on the right team. They go to a church and their Bible is the, the, the true... Christ of the Bible. They, they read the Jesus of the Bible, not the cult version of him. So they're on the narrow road. And those in the proper church reading the proper Bible, they are, on, they are going to be right with Christ because of those conditions only. But that's not the context here. Jesus blows that notion out of the water with this passage. This is not a comparison of false and true religion. The many here are professing believers of the true Christ. They may be professing wrongly, and they are certainly not doing it in His name, but they are preaching that true Christ. These are not Muslims or Hindus. They are professing that Jesus is Lord, and they preached in His name. They did miracles in His name, and they cast out demons in His names and mighty works. So Christ is not talking about false religions that don't profess Christ properly, because perhaps they did. But followers who are claiming to know Christ of the Bible, that's who these people are. That is why they're surprised. That is why they're defending themselves. And here, Christ condemns them to hell. So that's a dangerous deception, false teachers. It's not just identifying those who are part of the correct religion and those who are not, It's a deception from within. False teachers claiming to know Jesus. And the deception here, however, isn't just because of false prophets. They are there, and there's a warning of it. But there's something that leads us to false prophets. It's a a deception that's much closer to home and affects all of those who are not redeemed through Christ alone. Even, Even those who are still live with it. That's the heart. The deception of the heart. Familiar passage, Jeremiah 17, 9-10, describes the heart. Unlike the world, how does the world describe the heart? Follow it, trust it, you know, embrace it. Um, But Jeremiah is kind of pointed here. A Christian couldn't say, follow your heart and read this passage. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10 I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Wow, that's your heart. It's not our friend, it's not our guide, and it certainly is not our righteousness. Our hearts are actually the enemy from within. So here Jeremiah explains that every man is already deceived because of the wickedness of their own hearts. So you don't have any internal navigation. You have an external guide, a light unto your path. The deception firstly comes from within as people are convinced of their own goodness. Now if you ask anyone, are you a good person? You could go to, to Moor and ask, hey, convict, are you a good person? yeah. He killed 10 people. I only killed my mom. You know, they would find a way to look at relative righteousness. So that's the kind of deception. that we, They're convinced of their own goodness, even though they have a desperately sick and wicked heart. They then seek out confirmation of their goodness through false prophets that affirm what they already believe about themselves. So Paul warns Timothy about the days that are coming, and I would even argue the days that are here. They've arrived where they, quote, will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And that's what deceived people do. They're not objective. They're not looking to be convicted of truth. They want to find for themselves confirmation of what they already believe about themselves, about God, and about their salvation. So he warns them here. The heart is so deceptive that it will even seek out teachers that affirm the carnality that you are comfortable with. All under the banner of Christianity. So more than false prophets, more than the angel of this world, and one could say the heart is the most deceptive of all. And it's unrelenting. A constant internal navigator steering the unsaved away from the truth and towards myths all intentionally to avoid the truth of their condition this is what we see in Christ's warning to those he never knew he asks them to depart from me because they did not see Christ's righteousness but they worshiped their own all of those a lifetime of works piled up not offering to Christ but to verify their own righteousness and self-justification by their avid religious works, their duties, their involvement. They've convinced themselves and those around them that they'll be received by Christ. I can't think of anything more horrifying on such a terrible day as that. Because many won't have any doubt. Because they haven't examined themselves. They haven't questioned their understanding of the gospel. Because it's a self-affirming circuit. They believe in their hearts. They look for false teachers to affirm what their hearts say. And the cycle continues. And there is a lifetime of duty to affirm what their heart has told them. Maybe they were baptized. Maybe they gave generously. They went on mission trips even. And in this passage, they're pleading with Christ to see, for Him to see the works that they're boasting about. Because they did it for themselves, not for Him. So, key point. If you need to prove to Christ that you are saved, you are not. Christ is the one who proves your salvation, not you. If there's anything in the sermon you'll write down, that is it. If you need to prove to Christ you are saved, you are not. Christ is the one who proves and secures and seals your salvation, not you. And so... Christ gives the chilling warning in this passage that hell will be full of professing believers, active even in their own righteousness, looking to earn their way to heaven. Let's look at a few points to unpack this. There are those maybe even here who hear this and understand the difference between the narrow and wide road. And maybe you need to understand the difference between the few and the many. And this is a, this is a goats and sheep's analogy. And, um, yeah, let's look at this terrifying truth in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, those sobering first words in verse 21 are what? Not everyone. This means all that stand before him, in his name, even, in quotes, may think they are right with God. But here Christ is saying, those who think you are justified are not. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. This affirms that there will be eternally devastated people who on the basis of confessing with their mouth Jesus, Lord, will find that He is not Lord of their lives. But what about the proof text that we're so familiar with? And it's often quoted as proof of your salvation or let's call it evidence of your salvation Romans 10 right Romans 10 9 to 10 many read this as a formula rather than a condition or a state let's look at that Romans 10 verse 9 to 10 because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? you just got to do those two things, and you're good. I just need to make a confession. I just need to say it out loud, and then believe it, believe what I've said, and I'm good. But wait a minute, wait a minute. What about that deceptive heart we just looked at? People get this the wrong way around, and believe that if they repeat it often enough, With their mouth, then they'll start to believe it with their hearts. Paul puts the meaning the other way. Here, a person is so convicted from the heart, agonized because of their sin before God, and devastated by their condemnation to come, they cry out in confession their need for Christ and plead forgiveness and salvation. So what comes first? The belief in the heart. This is about making Christ your Lord, not just some formulaic way to salvation, which is how it's often quoted. I said it, and yeah, I believe in Christ. But we'll look at a bit more at belief in a moment. Because when a person is truly convicted of the Lordship of Christ in their heart, the confession will naturally <clears throat> spill out of the heart. It comes out as worship. And it comes out as an overflow of the heart. This is speaking of an act of worship, not a pledge to get into heaven. Now, we've learned that the tongue is kind of the barometer of the heart, right? This passage describes a heart that is thoroughly broken and wrought with guilt that cries out in their need of Christ. Not a script that then gives you you a ticket to get to heaven. And then you can live as you want. So, Key point in this passage is that you can get it right with your mouth. Because all of us can repeat words. But you can get it wrong with your heart. You can get it right with your mouth, but wrong with your heart. It's easy to mimic what others are saying or what you see on a page. But it's impossible to muster true faith and confession and repentance. And that's what is described here as an empty profession of faith. Paul reminds Timothy of the same thing in, in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him, how? By their works. They they profess, but don't do. And what does he say? They're detestable, disobedient, and what? Unfit for any good work. They might do good things, but it's not counted as righteousness. Because it's for their salvation, not from their salvation. And this very familiar book that Denver's taking us through, in James... We see the same lordship understanding of the gospel here. A genuine profession from the heart will come through the mouth. The mouth doesn't change the heart. But what comes out of the mouth is because of the heart. James 2.14 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And again, we, this is often read in reverse. If I do the works, I'll be saved. But what is being described here is that out of your faith will come works just in the same way will come a profession of genuine faith. This means that a faith that doesn't change your life is no faith at all. If there's no obedience but much professing, what do you have? A false profession of faith. So Jesus speaks about this lack of obedience directly in the Gospel of Luke. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, similar to what we've just looked at. It's a plea. It's a desperate plea. And then do not do not what I say. Do not do what I say. It's a rhetorical question because Christ knows the answer already. He knows why they don't obey him. Because, firstly, they're unsafe. And they're professing with their lips, but inwardly they are what? Working for themselves. They're even worshiping their own works. They have no intention of obeying him, but want to be seen as righteous by doing in his name. It's all formulaic, it's all for external, man pleasing appearances. So, of the many who claim the name of Christ as Lord, there are only a few who will be in his kingdom. Are you paying attention yet? This is important. Who are those on the narrow road? Christ answers the question in the second part of verse 21. But the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we know that confession is required. We need to confess with our mouths, all right? That's, that's the easy or even empty part of it. You see that in Romans. But without obedience, the confession is what? It's a lie, self deception. Only those who confess Christ as their Lord with their mouths, but also make him Lord of their lives, will be in the kingdom of heaven. In the Sermon of the Mount, he goes, um, he, we, we want to look at what doing the will of the Father looks like, because he does lay it out. Uh, and I've really truncated it here, just to give you a, a picture of, of why that's there in the Sermon of the Mount. That we are to be broken in spirit, to be broken over sin, to be meek, to thirst for righteousness, to let your light shine, which is the reflection of Christ's light. But you are reflecting that to others. Don't be angry. Do not lust. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Do not love the world and so on. Love your neighbor as yourself, which summarizes these things. So the will of the Father then is summarized in Matthew 5, in the middle of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, which is what we're looking at. These, Who can do these things? And if you have to write them down and check them off each day, you'll be a Pharisee. Because you're just working through a checklist. But it's there. It may not be complete, but there's enough there that you could do a checklist. No, I didn't glorify God. I I was angry. I did lust. I I don't have any light at all. And you would fail. Here, we must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So he points to the perfection and says you must do it. That's the standard. That's what he demands. Be perfect. That's the will for you and me and every believer. You don't have to have this mysterious, mystical view of God's will for your life, which many books have been written about. How do you find God's will? You pray with one leg off the floor, and at 11 o'clock at night, you repeat these prayers, and you memorize the scripture. There's some really crazy stuff out there. For simple things, should I get up in the morning... Maybe it's God's will that I don't. And people panic about even the smallest things. And they try to order their lives in a very mysterious and mystical um, lifestyle where they're looking for signs and, and proofs. And if you're looking for signs and proofs, you're going to find them. A cat crossing the road could be one of them. Anything. Car backfired. Oh, I better get up. But God gives you Very clearly, what his will is for your life, and that all believers need to do it. What is it? He expects the same that you be holy. So, this may be confusing to some. They say, Wait a second, my heart's wicked. I'm totally deceived by my own heart, and I have been listening to false believers. Maybe, are they false? What hope is there if this is my life? I can never reach this perfect standard. How can the righteous enter the kingdom if we must be perfect? And we know we can't. Christ. This leads us to our desperate need for Christ. We can only be justified by Him. Romans 5 6 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been how we received reconciliation. So, a lot there. We see now that Christ is the only way to be right with God. He died for us, the ungodly, not good, not the almost there, um, the Pharisee or the scribe, the ungodly, and justified. We have been justified by His death on the cross, which means the shedding of His blood, and saved by Him from what. God's wrath. Those men standing there know they now are facing God's wrath because they, in their self-justification, their self-righteousness, are left wanting. We deserve God's wrath. But in Christ, we are covered by His righteousness and then we receive that reconciliation with God. Righteousness is all that God accepts, which is why we need Christ. His perfect sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. And His sacrifice is the only thing that God accepts. So stop working for your salvation. Your duty and your devotion to your self-righteousness will be ashes. And we're going to see more specifically what it measures up to. So confessing with your mouth isn't enough. We need His sacrificial death to make us righteous. And we don't just need to say he's Lord, we need to submit our lives as our Lord. Because according to Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, which all of us would do in this room, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the frightening revelation. Let's look at our futile effort in this, in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, look at the many here. These are the futile efforts of man trying to enter by their own works, trying to convince even Christ that they are indeed worthy. In their desperation, they refer to their many great deeds that they've done, not on their own. They even say, in your name. But they were never His. If this is how you imagined encountering Christ at the end of your life, in this passage where you now need to show your list of things... Your, your, your achievements, your accomplishments, be afraid. You're in big trouble. Because you don't plead your case to be justified and to justify yourself before God. He is the one, as we've seen here, He justifies. He alone makes you worthy. If, he, if you think your backup plan is to show Him your baptismal certificate or your membership in church or how many committees you're on, missions, whatever, panic. Because those standing before Christ here in verse 21, they were the most religious to be found in the land. And look at what they dragged out in their defense. They were preachers. They cast out demons. Who's cast out a demon here? No one. They had the ability to perform miracles. Now, we don't know to the extent. Was it a fraudulent miracle? Was it just smoke and mirrors? Was it a demon? We don't know. But these are their works that they were known for. And that's their defense. Mighty works. They did it all in terms of works and commitment to the Christ of their own imagination, not the true Christ. And they offer it up to God as their good deeds. But look how Christ characterizes these men and that very impressive list compared to our lists. You workers of lawlessness. That's a summary. They're pleading. And this is a, they may have pleaded more, but this is our account. They would have been shouting, I can guarantee you, heartfelt cries. Now, this this word lawlessness here is the same Greek word as wickedness. So here we see the same profession of the mouth as those who are transformed um, by the heart. But the works are not only useless and counted for nothing, Christ calls them wicked works for doing these things in His name. And let's look at what wicked works look like from an unredeemed and unrighteous heart. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Polluted garment. God sees deeds from an unregenerate heart as filth. Not slightly acceptable or getting there or falling a bit short, but completely and utterly unacceptable. The word used for filthier and the word used for polluted garment is the same one for animal droppings. So you get a visual now of the stench, of the unsanitary, unclean nature of this garment. It's repulsive. And that's our state before him if we confess with our mouth only, but not in our heart. And those in verse 21 seem to have done the right deeds and those seemed good in their own deceptive hearts even, but they weren't done for him. Perhaps they did it to be seen by men. We don't know the whole story, but we know what Pharisees did. Or maybe they were just like the hypocrites who pray in the public square. But what we do know is that, they, that all that they did was for nothing because it was done with the wrong motives, which was for their own glory. Because they were doing it out of religion, not out of a restored heart. They did it for salvation, not from salvation. And that's an important difference. One is working for, which you can never achieve, because we see the perfection, the measure of perfection. But if you were made right and reconciled with God, then from that position you work from out of gratitude, out of joy, and out of a love to be obedient. But let's look at their, their, the, the final declaration here that Christ brings in, my, in, in verse 23. After they've kind of exhausted their list, of listing all their deeds and works, in Christ's name, He declares them that they should depart. I never knew you depart from Me. They did all these works, which may have even been faked, as I said, or maybe under the power of the devil. We don't know. But they were impressive. They were known for them. They felt they were on the right side. And because of this warning, this warning applies to us today, we can see that people convince themselves that they are right with God, even though their resume is far less impressive than this. They attend church. They log on to Bible study once in a while. They've maybe been baptized or maybe become a member. But these are the animal droppings in Isaiah. God's not interested in what you do for your salvation but what you do from it. And the danger in our thinking about righteousness, because we do have a worldly view that corrupts our thinking about righteousness, is that we can get by being religious rather than wearing the righteousness of Christ. This comes up a lot when you talk about Christ. Your neighbors, your colleagues, friends, if you ask them, do you know Christ? Most will say yes. Even if you have a Muslim friend, they'll probably say yes. But Christ is saying here, of the many, that he doesn't know them. And many don't understand the question when you ask them, do you know Christ? They're saying, yes, they know of him. They know about him. They know the story of him. They may even say, I know I need him, but not sure how. But they know they need him. In short, they know all of the facts about Jesus, the historicity of Him. They know Him like you might know a famous person. And they have a, that same kind of distant and impersonal relationship that you would have with a celebrity you know of from a book that you never met. This is the shallow kind of relationship the many have with Christ. And this is why he replies to them that he never knew them. In verse 21, these men know Jesus. You can see they know him. And even in in their deeds, they felt like they were being faithful and righteous to him. They were obviously calling him Lord, weren't they? But the problem here is that he didn't know them. They preached sermons. They cast out demons. They did miracles. But Christ doesn't know them as his own because they did not trust in Him for their own righteousness. Or they didn't, they didn't obey His will. Nor did they make Him Lord of their lives. And because He doesn't know them, He says, I never knew you depart from Me. Even though they called Him Lord, they are condemned by their own self-righteousness. And that's the terrifying truth. That's why these are the most frightening words in the New Testament. Because of self-deception, many will lead a good and moral a neighborly, thoughtful life, professing to know Him, and He says, Depart from me. Remember that Christ is preaching this sermon to a crowd of the most religious people of the day. He wasn't preaching to the ungodly Gentiles or Greeks, but to those who profess to be righteous. Christ is trying to open the eyes of the, self, the self-deceived who have accumulated works of filth to offer to God for their justification. And this is why Paul commands self-examination to see we are fools for deceiving ourselves and rather than those who have been clothed by him. What is that examination? 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail Meet the test. How else do you know you're a child of God? two Peter one ten. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. So what are these qualities? How do you confirm your calling and election? Well, as we looked at earlier, obedience is one. Our godly lives is evidence of being in Christ. Is it our desire for holiness there? Do you hate sin as God does? That is part of the test. It's not a proof, but it's evidence. You can't claim to know Christ if you don't also desire to live. Like him and for him. So, is your following Christ evident in your life? Are you looking at your religious obligations and your moving lips as confirmation of your salvation? Or are you looking for fruit, even the private fruit of the heart? Paul gives us some guidance um, in, in 2 Peter in the verse prior about what our fruit should look like. Because we looked at 2 Peter just now, but in, in 2 Peter 1.5, he says this. For this very reason, make every effort to su- uh, supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, unfruitful, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So if you lack these qualities, you're described as a blind person who is still offering filth. But look at the fruit of the Spirit here, and the fruit and evidences of your salvation. The love of one another, and the brotherly affection that should be evident John says this in 1 John 2, uh, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. We know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, whoever says I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So there's a mimicking of Christ's likeness here, a desire to be more like him and conformed to the way he walked. Another familiar passage in the book of James, which we've been going through, uh, James one twenty six: If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, we looked at this two weeks ago. What, what, what is a man who can't bridle his tongue? That's a false... false convert. It shows that, uh, that your heart is not of God because what comes out is a flow from the heart. comes out of the mouth. As we've learned from Denver's preaching in this passage, the tongue is one of the evidences of the heart. If it's out of control and seeks its own glory, then the religion is you, not Christ. There are many more scriptures we can go through, but um, all of them make it clear that a righteous life comes from who are in Christ, not who we become for Christ. A religious life comes from who we are in Christ, not who we become for Christ. The warning from Christ is that we cannot convince Him of our own righteousness. Take the truth of Scripture and the righteous standard of God and evaluate your life. See that you are living in Him, that He is living in you, that it is Christ in you. Do you love living for Him? Do you love being with God's people and putting them ahead of yourself? Do you love Christ more than the pleasures and the temporary rewards of this life, this world? Those are some of the questions you could ask. And for the many in this passage... They were working for the temporal and the momentary satisfaction of doing something good and doing something religious, even in the name of Christ. Why? Why would they do that? Because it made them feel good. But that feeling died with them. And then you find yourself before the judgment seat. If you find that He is not in you, then strive to enter that narrow gate. Ask Christ for His forgiveness and to be clothed in His righteousness. Put to death the old you and turn to Him for the righteousness you need that only He can provide, and He will save you. Matthew 16, 25. Then Jesus told His disciples this, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake would find it. That's the good news. That... Your contentment and your works come from a new life in Christ. If you want to come after Him, there is an element of self-denial. There is a need to, be, um, to take up a cross and follow Him. If you want your life to be saved, you need to deny it and lose it for His sake. If you want to be right with Him, let Him make you new again and place your trust in His salvific work, in His shed blood, and in His saving and sustaining grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, much in this passage, Lord, that we are still processing, and Lord, we have even a veiled understanding of these profound scriptures at times, but we know the important truths, the clear truths that, Lord, we are unrighteous, we are unclean, Lord, our works are but filthy rags without the righteousness of your Son. Lord, may that be the desire of our hearts this morning. If those sitting here who have been working for themselves to feel good about their works, to be self-justified, and working in self-righteousness, Lord, help us and help them, Lord, to come to you in repentance of that sin, that accumulation of filth that you, Lord, will turn away. And Lord, help us to enter that narrow road that only you can lead us to. By your saving hand and grace in our lives, that your electing salvation that you offer to us, Lord, that we may come to you in trust and obedience and make you Lord of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.